0: Scientific world. Here you see in a way philosophy of Socrates represents the philosopher who is confronting the pre-philosophic world, and the consequences of that relationship are what is you know what is developed here. Uh, now. If you talk about the priest, uh, the uh, the, uh, the uh, I mean, and I don't think anything's are missing if you could think about it. I mean, of course, he doesn't talk about the priests, uh, but uh, but then he comes to the artisans. And the artisans are very simple people, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, shoemakers and so on. But he says that they know something, and that, that's very important to 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 recognize. In a way, you could say he gets his standard for knowledge. I mean, this is a very important passage, I think, for showing students what. No I matter mean, how skeptical a man is. He really can't say, we don't know how to make shoes. This is the strange human situation. In a way, we're surrounded by darkness, but in another way, there is light, perfect light about certain simple things. And perhaps the Socratic suggestion is that you apply what you know, or the techniques of the art, to what the poet deal with, you know, or, you know the, uh, the, the that's what the statesmen the, the, the statesmen deal with, you know, in Richard II where they describe the gardener's art. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah of course. Well, I mean, there. Are, I mean, that, that's in a way one of the, that's the uh, in a way it's an application. You see him using that principle here. Uh, you, uh, you don't see him in operation. You he describes it, but somehow, that, of course, but of course, it precisely. Principles of the arts to the to the to the whole that of course where the whole mystery lies and how that can be done and so on is and whether it can be done is the great problem that's uh, that's uh, that's an issue that's uh, that's uh, that's hard to tell but somehow that's the suggestion but you see the way in which he, he he said these people know you see here he has this marvelous I mean he states the problem that is particularly true in the university state but is always true there are specialties here that know. And then there are the overview fields, you know, of the humanities, which talk about the whole, but are well, how shall I say? I, I, I was going to suggest full of shit, but something like bloated, yeah. <laughs> the uh, the uh, you know, you know, where you really can't take them seriously, you know, you know, the world of. You know, the gurus, you know, they, of, of the day, whether they be Galbraith or Paul Tillich or, you know, they, you, know, you know, you know, and at the same time, you know, there are terribly competent people, you know, that you see. You know, I mean, really really know how to do the equivalent of shoemaking, you know, like the heart transplant. You know. And, uh, the, uh, and Socrates says he would prefer to be ignorant and be open to the whole Because these people are closed to the whole. Their technical competence closes them to the whole. So you can say that the poets and the statesmen know the problem of the whole, and to that extent they are are philosophic somehow, or, you know, share the vision of philosophy. The specialists have knowledge, but they're closed to the whole. What one must do is somehow be able to live with the awareness of ignorance, and live ignorantly while open to the whole. That's somehow the philosophic posture. Whether most human beings are capable of that, you know, all that that implies. You know, this is a point where one really can't stop and discuss what that means. You know, what you know, people really have to believe in in order to live most of their lives, the kinds of lives they lead. And also what it means to be open to the whole, to the question of the whole, and the problem of the whole. And what, what Socrates implies here, A, is he has a standard of knowledge, as I say, hence knows what knowledge is, but also, Knows that the whole is still a problem, no, and not an answer. Uh, the uh Close this passage, of. To this quote
1: says,
0: yeah. Close that passage. misquotes yeah. changes it. intentionally. Yeah. This is, uh, no, I mean, uh, when, when, when when you read the first this, the discourse. But, I mean, the Socratic figure, of course, just occurs every place, and there's no question that Socrates is the found head for everybody. I mean, everybody is either agreeing with him or disagreeing with him. And what's the extent they don't explicitly disagree with him? they're agreeing with. Him. I mean, he's the, f- the clear founder of political philosophy, surely, and somehow philosophy as we know it. And you can say he, as a figure, he states the problem of philosophy or expresses the problem of philosophy. Now, if you take a look at 23c in relation to the question of the corruption of the youth, he says, in addition to these things, the young men who have the most leisure, the sons of the richest men, accompany them of their own car, accord. A, a um, uh, taking pleasure in listening to me refuting human beings, and themselves many times imitate me uh, uh, and, att- and attempt to uh, investigate others. Uh, the uh, you know, he says another moment it is not unpleasant to see others being refuted. There's a certain comedy, you see. Now, I don't know what one thinks about leading children around and taking to the most respectable authorities of the society and causing them to laugh at them. And there's no indication that Socrates distinguished who these boys were and what kind of effect this ultimately would have on them. So those are the responses to the first charge. Pretty fantastic. He doesn't teach money, and he's on a Delphic quest. Did the god tell him go out and do this? But you see, he keeps saying, the god sent me out, too. You know? It's really very funny, I mean, if you think about it. Uh, the, uh, and it shows, in some sense, the enormous claims. He's the wisest man of all. And a picture of philosophy emerges here. Which isn't pretty, obviously, the total picture of philosophy. But its philosophy is dealing with the question of knowledge. See later, he says philosophy does teach men virtue and vice, and that's not the same thing. I mean, there, here there's no implication he's teaching men virtue or anything of the kind. Now, that's the f- those are the uh, those are the first charges. The trumped up charges and trumped up by Socrates, you know, and that's the defense. And of course that changes everything when you come into the second, to, to the real charge of the second, the, the, the new charges, yes? Is there anything you want to say about those passages? I mean, of course there are many, many things. I mean, I, I don't know the text perfectly well. Yeah?
2: After Socrates has uh, made this incredibly proud statement that he's the wisest man in, in Athens, then in 23a... He uh, removes himself from the scene, so, so to speak, and says that uh, the author just using him as an example. That's all. So as to say that uh, any one of you is the wisest who, likes Socrates, knows that uh,
0: uh, he knows nothing. Why is the contrast there? Well, it's not a contrast. Uh, he says anybody who's like Socrates, but nobody's like Socrates. Socrates is the only one who says this. But anybody can be like me. You can say that's, that's the characteristic of the Socratic rationalism. It's universal and so on. But there's no question. I, I mean, Look, I mean, everything. This is terribly modest. My wisdom is nothing. I know, I know nothing, and that makes me wiser than anyone alive. Yeah. You know, there's, there is terrific. You know, my Yiddish would even say chutzpah. You know, with the hubris. You know, involved here. Yeah. I mean, this is a real act of hubris. The whole speech, as you'll see. You know, in the apparent, apparent modesty. Yeah. But it's at the same time it's not what our kids would like because it isn't straightforward authenticity and at the same time it's somehow appealing but you see they don't know the none of our children they're like the middle westerners you were speaking about they have no irony uh they uh i i have fun to treat them with irony i remember <laughs> I said to Frances Perkins once, um, when she introduced me to uh, Farley, I said, the most striking thing about Farley is that he, uh, I, I, I said, is uh, how, um, let me say how, what is, it, uh, what is it, how straightforward he is. And she said, oh no. Um, the most likely thing is how easy it is to convince him you're being straightforward with him. <laughs> the the, <laughs> the uh, that uh, that's uh, um, no, you have in a certain sense, uh, that, you know, a very beautiful picture of those those striking Irony Is there anything you want to say about those passages of the apology that we just? Did? I'm about, about, about oh, meaning of that whole was kind section, of, yeah? yeah I was
1: kind of by
0: your the That's what I understand. That's well, a very odd thing to do. Well, there's no question that this allows for the occasion to present philosophy in a way to raise the problem of philosophy, and to raise the problem of philosophy in relationship to the question of piety, yeah. know. Can question?
3: Sure. Peter, go to question. Um, what sort of reaction do you get from students, you know, when you want to press it this far? Be with them, the text, are they willing to follow it? or
0: Well, I'd have to move more slowly, I count on more experience, you know, on your part. But frequently I confuse them too much. So then, I just have to simplify it, we, we, which, which one can, you know. I mean, you have to raise this question. I mean, they, they do get intrigued by the book, simply, you know. I ask, you know, you just read this book, you know. You said, and, uh, what kind of a defendant, you know? You you, you got to learn to read it as it was a drama, you know. You know, you you know, I mean act as though you you were a juror, a prosecuting attorney. You have to understand this, you know. And then so, you know, he he brings up this first charge. What does he do it for? And then some of the details of it. Uh, of course, the characteristic of all Platonic dialogues is there, so many circles within circles, in a way that the Aristotelian books, aren't the, is, in one sense, they're very attractive, but they're also extremely confusing.
2: Mm.
0: And so I have varying success with the apology. That's what the... the, the, uh, the to a certain extent, probably because I know it better but also because I can complete it in a different kind of way. The Republic, although in a way, the, the apology is the beginning point for the whole Socratic the, uh, enterprise. And it's a very good book to begin with, but uh, you, you, well, you just have to get practice in cutting it off at some point. But I think they can't get terribly intrigued by the you know, by the cleverness of this, you know, and you know, uh, how did he do this? You know, I mean, you know, the, the whole Delphic story. And then, well, what's he telling this fantastic thing for? You know, the, uh, and then, then you see, and then they're so surprised because they have seen the kind of boring civil liberties thing in this. You know, they're all for it, but they're bored to that whole hum. You know, uh, that, yeah, that's what it is. You know, you know, good old Socrates put to death by the nasty Athenian people, and we wouldn't be so prejudiced. Yeah. Uh, the uh, that's uh, you know I mean very simply you know that's uh, you know they make it an themselves, and then all of a sudden you know they realize you know he might be guilty you know and he's very very clever you know and some of them get morally shocked because Socrates seems to be playing around in a way you don't play around with you know and that's very interesting too uh, it's a variety and you can get a variety of responses if you can once focus them and with a group of twenty you can do that I mean if you're willing to spend several days I mean you have to go more somewhat more slowly than I am going obviously yeah.
2: To add to Tom's pedagogical question, do you find that when you use this method of a careful ex students tend to bifurcate
0: into two groups, those who are patient enough to follow you and are really intrigued, and those who aren't and simply turn off? Not quite, no. I mean, that's a hard question, you know, and I suppose there are an awful lot of students that turn off, but since this is kind of interesting stuff, even if it doesn't, you know, there's a certain desire, you know, to get with it a little bit. You see, particularly when it starts tying into the second and third book, you know, I mean, you see, there are larger principles that emerge out of these details, and you know, a certain pride. You see, it's very hard to tell when I have a class of 250, which is rather nice, because then you know, there are a lot of silent ones who you know, just disappear, you know, into the you know, woodwork. But in general, they're they're kind of interested by it. I mean, you know, this is you know, there's a way you say very great question of vulgarization here, you know, you're out selling it, you know, I mean, in sense you would think you really are, oh, perhaps only tell the teachers on the highest level to students, but you have to do this, I mean, if, if you're a teacher and uh, the, uh, and, and I have a feeling, yes, I mean, you know, if they, particularly if you give them the sense, you know, you're taking them on a great mystery and this is something entirely different than they've ever done, and it really is, you know, you know, there's nothing, they've never had anything like this, you know you know, looking at a book and recognizing they don't understand it at all and that you're raising very gr- big issues in connection with it and questioning all contemporary politics and raising questions about religion and so on. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I you know, it can be confusing, but at the same time there, there's just a certain um, exhilaration, you know, I, I think, that it causes, I mean, that's, uh, it's hard to say, but, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not trying to sell you anything, you know, I mean, I'm trying to sell you, you know, my copy of the great books, you know, <laughs> or an Encyclopedia Britannica or something. They, uh, the, but uh, you know, when you ask me these questions, and it's, I, it's the first time I've ever done anything like this. You know, I te- you know, asked to come in and discuss with a group of teachers. Uh, the uh, the uh, and so uh, and so these questions—the first time they've ever been posed me—and I, I have to think in response. But you know, the general attitude towards these things is: they, students are anxious to have some content, and they appreciate honesty, even though it confuses them a bit. You know, very uh, very simply, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I read
0: your answer is the last one, you're going very fast. And it went excruciatingly slowly.
1: <laughs>
0: Was that and in that little group, uh, the, the little Alan seminar? Alan yeah. And yeah, and Joel Schwartz, you yeah, know, they're both at uh, Harvard now, yeah. You would ask, I don't
1: know, you, 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 you were even conscious of this, you would ask, they were supposed to have read that, that section of the text, and you would ask them what was in there, what was said, and, and
0: some of them did know what to answer, and others would give a very inadequate answer, and
1: then you would sort of summarize the answer. Did I give them hell for that? Uh, yes, I think so, exactly. ridicule uh, is always you, a
0: very good... Uh, you would tell
1: them that, you know, they didn't really have all that much to read, even as they should have done their reading, more carefully. And then you would start raising the questions of you know, all right, this is the scene, you know, what do you make of that? And then again, there was some hesitation, and all of a sudden, somebody comes up with an explanation of some kind. And then all the others at that moment wake up. Well, what does he know that I don't know? <laughs> 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 you know who is that? Yeah. He said, maybe it was And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's a whole conversation going on. I think it's in that way that uh, you know that, uh, you can sometimes bring in people who don't have a, a natural interest. In I think
3: you always. But by losing but what about the extent to which they um, they would prefer to get on to the discussion of contemporary these issues, but in a contemporary setting, you know?
0: Well. It's I'm, I'm in a certain way, in, uh, you know, open to their doing that, but you see, what I try to do is focus it in such a way that the text does it, you see, and you see my usual way is to say, oh, well, the way we put it today, that we don't understand the thing and show them, you know, that we don't understand the issue, you know, and that, yeah, you know, they say, that, 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 the, I mean, that's a fairly easy thing to handle, you see, I mean, obviously, they all want to do their own autobiographies, constantly, they're, you know, they're preoccupied, you know, with their dull selves, you know, and one of the thing is, of course, precisely take them outside themselves a little bit, you know, and, uh, the, you know, and I'm constantly talking about things, I say, you know, we say, But take a look, you know, everybody's complaining about modern life without cohesion, without consensus. Well, wasn't it necessary to have these kinds of beliefs to have consensus? You know, wasn't something like the Polis necessary? What about the God? Aren't we, you know, aren't we perhaps falling apart? You know, look at what, you know, both the communists and the fascists had to do, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, uh, Plato understood these things much better than we do, you know, and then sort of, I mean, in every text, I mean, this isn't necessarily an ancient thing, act as the advocate of the text against the student. And I think one can do that, you see, so that there are issues... Really, uh, that uh, that they learn to focus their issues through the text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh,
3: so the abductive, apothec- in other words, even if they set up thinking that this really pretty dull.
0: Oh, that you must do. You must. You know, you know, I mean, like this question, is he guilty? That's a very good beginning point, you know, because that gets involved, you know, that It didn't even occur to them that this was anything else, not a story of injustice, whereas I think it's an admission of guilt, you know. And then it's a suggestion that maybe knowledge and politics or knowledge in the city, the philosophy of the city, don't go together very well. And so that, you know, and then you start raising, well, then what about censorship? Isn't censorship desirable? You know, and so on. You know, and that, that gets them excited, you know. You, you, you'd be surprised how lightly held their beliefs are. You know, they get indignant, scream a little bit, and then you know, they're, they're suddenly they're fascists. You know? <laughs> you know, I mean, really, I mean, it's just, it's uh, incredible. You know, they, they really don't have very deep convictions, and that's just a troubling thing, cause, because one doesn't want to weaken, you know, convictions and decent things. But 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 but, uh, but uh, since they're so weak, it's perhaps better to refound them. You know, after thinking through the problem. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, but there are some unexamined prejudices which are held very deeply. I mean, I think that's true. You know, in, you know, in, you know I, mean, I, I I imagine that the pilgrims had a lot of unexamined prejudices which they held very deeply and which which gave them great strength. But they, these kids have unexamined <laughs> premises which give them nothing. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, that's the. I mean, and that's the reason of well, The reason why the kids, as well as professors, so easily, you know, will abandon those principles. I mean, it's you know, so easy for them. You know in the atmosphere of 1969, 1970, to demand, oh, abandon, you know, to, to, to swallow Marcuse's intolerance doctrine. So, well, with such facility, you know, just like that. You, you, you know, you, you imagine that the liberal society stood for something, but uh, the, the kids in that, and a very large portion of the faculties, you know, were saying, well, there are really a lot of things you can't say, you know, and so on. Yeah, that's true.
1: That's very rare that you find the opposite. happened last year was And she was taking a on I was court, And they allowed to changed, And She was learning about all kinds of things. <coughs>
2: back to Well, you know.
0: Even more, uh, the. Uh, I mean, to give you a description of one of the most moving, or not moving, but less moving and profound and uh, interesting academic experience I ever had, that class you visited was 1968-69. It was that seminar I was teaching in this Greek civilization program, I remember now I'm fairly certain. Uh, the, uh, when the Cornell blow-up occurred, these were ordinary kids, you know, we're, and practically all the students went on the side of the gun-carrying students, blacks, not—well, because there was nothing else, nothing stand against it. But practically all of these kids, with a couple of exceptions, had a real distance on it, because they were reading The Republic. And some of them got together and put out a handbell, just quoting those passages in the Republic. Where the young man is carried away by the voices in the public assembly resounding against the rocks and overcoming all principles and all other teachings public opinion, and then I mean there was a passion with which they read this description, which we hit just those passages in Book Eight or to describe the democratic character with its lack of beliefs, you know, and its changingness, you know, and its involvement with politics, you know, and the way, you know, and its affinity for t- certain kinds of tyranny, and so on, and believe me, those kids were really living that book at that moment, I mean, it was, a, yeah. you know, they they they, 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 were, they were living that book in relation to life, and it gave them, in one sense, just... The difference, I continued teaching, most of my colleagues, and I quite rightly stopped teaching, And I, but this was such a small group, and it was so specially connected, I just didn't want to drop it, yeah? so I did it in a kind of secret way. Uh, the, I mean, most of the, my good colleagues, I mean, you know, went on a sort of teacher strike during the gun situation. And it was one of the most impressive experiences, because there was no doubt that, that in one way the book gave direct criticism of what was going on. But at the same time, they also saw that this was what a university was about and what was going on out there. It wasn't what a university was about. And that in some sense, a kind of intransigence about, you know, living together, you know, having this common experience against the issues that seem most important, war, poverty, racism, you know, until the bombs hit you, it's worthwhile going on like this. You know, and it had been a real experience, you know, in you know, a kind of moral education, you know, in a way of life. Connected with the book, I mean, I, I, I think that was probably in a way the most telling, you know, experience I ever had of that kind. I mean, it couldn't have been better. Yeah. Right. Uh, all right, shall we? Uh, shall we go on, or do you want? To, I mean, I don't know what time uh, people want to go to. I mean, I, I, I'm perfectly willing to go on for another another half hour, but uh, the, the question is, do? You, uh, I, I thought somebody had to go or something like this. Was this uh, no, no, it's fine. Uh, The, then he turns to the discussion with, yeah, let me say, by the way, let me uh, stop momentarily, that of course, if they are reading this, or fairly slowly, it is not like my pouring it down your throat, although in a way you're much more ready for it, though it's not the same kind of problem. But they read it, and they have the text right at hand, and then they discuss it. There's a kind of uh, well, a combination of A, they're somewhat competent, but then also revelation about it, as it you know, one can make it emerge more slowly and so on. Uh, that depends. I mean, I've taught the Apology mostly to freshmen. Freshmen, in are among the best. It's a very good time to get them, because they, they really are hopeful still. <laughs> uh, the, I think the best results are gotten with freshmen. The, uh, Do they take it uh, as a uh, elective, or what is it? Oh, well, all courses that I have taught. I don't think I've ever taught a required course. Could you briefly summarize the first your uh, the
2: interpretation of Right. <laughs> In other words, uh, let me say, uh, well, I'll ask it the the question. You're saying that um, <laughs> that when you read this, what you what you see is that Socrates very cleverly fabricates a beginning before the beginning, and there are reasons for this fabrication. And then as you analyze the, the uh, sort of comedy of the first answers, you start moving into the more serious nature of philosophy and the conflict between biopia. Well, let,
0: let me say that it's always somehow comic, though. That's what, you know, there, 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 in every bit of gravity, there's always levity in Plato. You know, I mean, there's never, let's stop with the joking, you know, and get on with it. You know, there's always, and I, this ironic posture, something about the world is ridiculous, and there's something ridiculous about Socrates' situation. And in a way, that's the problem with the most serious things. You know, human life, is somehow ridiculous and the most serious things are serious and the relationship between those two things leads to a mixture of levity and gravity and that's what one has to teach them uh, now that's that's the end of a lifetime you know it's the beginning of a certain kind of taste uh, but what what I suggest is that they that, that, that here in that he is he's talking to an audience and he's trying to present a picture of himself to that audience. In some sense, he's confusing that audience. But in another sense, he is expanding both the charges against himself and his own personality beyond the limits which this very simple man, how are these men to understand philosophy? I mean, how do we, (coughs) why did we respect Einstein? Because we were told he was terribly good in the age where science counted. You know, where it was because it seemed, you know, to do necessary things. How can, the unwise understand the wise. they either simply not pay attention to them, they regard them as dangerous. There's a beautiful picture of Gulliver you know, in Lilliput, you know, when they have to the one put his eyes out. He's just too dangerous. You know? There is a real problem of this kind of greatness. In a way, because we deny this kind of greatness, we don't deal with this problem. The uh, Socrates is beginning to if philosophy is to exist somehow or other, it must bridge the gap between that distance. Well, the wise men, the great pre-Socratic philosophers, you know, who first had no communication with the people and were accused of impiety, you know, and ran all kinds of difficulties. Socrates, you can say Socrates in Socrates' death, after Socrates' death, philosophy somehow became respectable. This was a kind of defense or rhetoric for philosophy among the non-philosophic. You say if the great issue, the great difference between the Socratic and, the, and later philosophy, modern philosophy, it's around the same issue. Politics and men as such are fundamentally unreasonable. <laughs> philosophy is reasonable, therefore there's a problem. There are one of two possibilities. Either you have to appeal to their unreason somehow by rhetoric, or you have to enlighten men and make them all reasonable. Those are the two possibilities. Those are the two great strands in the tradition around the same issue, you see. And you immediately lead into that. And here you can say the Socratic argument is, he makes himself this object of piety. Not this object of use. I mean, although he does promise he'll do certain good things, but it's not the same way, as Machiavelli says, I'll teach you how to rule. There's a very great difference. And uh, you can say that's the larger theoretical issue which starts emerging, that relationship between wisdom and civil society, something of that kind. But
2: you were to be saying then that, see, I would have taken it in
3: terms of
2: the true rhetorical ploy of putting the piety, although well, I'm
0: an object of piety, not only not envious, but that. No. Um, it sounds like, uh, uh, it sounds like the tendency of your interpretation is to say, is to reduce that to a ploy. No. In a way it's a ploy. In a way it is. Because I don't true. think it's true. I mean, you know, yeah, all I can say is, like, all I can prove at this point is that it's questionable. You know, does questionable things with it, but I don't believe that This was the source of his philosophy. I don't think probably the, thing, <coughs> the, the Dolphic thing ever occurred. Kairophon is dead, but, but maybe it did, you know? Oh, no, the, I, I the, understand. Uh, uh, and so the, the, it's a ploy, surely. But within that, he points out the problem he has to attach himself to the divine. But in the very act of attaching himself to the divine, he shows you know, his questionable piety in relationship to that divine thing which he created himself. You know, There are layers within layers you know, for different kinds of readers here. I mean, you have to see me. What does one see first? Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I don't teach for money, and I'm pious. But then a cleverer person might say other things. He, in a way, speaks to many people at the same time. But something is represented in that. You see, in this very act of having to do this, a problem is revealed, a problem about philosophic discourse within the political community. And that's not a ploy, simply. Yes,
2: but what, what I mean is that, OK, the story of chirophon in some way is a ploy. But it's not a ploy to the extent that he's, that the st- it seems like someone who sees through the ploy really understands the ha. There's a displacement here of the old knowledge of the whole, which might have been religious, by the new. See, I would have thought that the point of, which is what I hear you saying, I would have thought the point of the ploy was more of a, there's a discontinuity, surely, but it's more like a, of a sublation, a purification of the old religious.
0: Well, the question is, in what ways? I mean, one would just have to see. But you can say, oh, he he comes out ignorant. And in the first place, he substitutes for belief in the word of the Delphic Oracle, a quest based on questioning, dialectic, yeah. not not belief, but dialectic, on the one hand, and on the second place, for the old, you can say, the ancestral view of the world a doubt about the whole. Now, we'll, 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 at this point, we can't say anything more than that about its relationship, to but I wouldn't call that a ploy.
2: That's oh,
0: no, no, I see. OK. Uh, the? The, uh, no. OK. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it has to be reformed. I'm very grateful to re- re- pushed, I mean, because of all the different kinds of formulations that I haven't adequately formulated myself. Uh, the, uh, then, comes finally his turn to the charge. And he here, within the dialogue, he incorporates a dialogue, you see, which would show the way in which he normally normally operates and where he can't operate in politics. And I will insist that this is a very important thing. The method of philosophy is dialectic. And perhaps not the method, the mode of philosophy. The mode of politics is rhetoric. Two forms of persuasion, two forms of reasoning, and the question: Can the two ever really be bridged? The kinds of appeals have to be very different. You learn something about. See, you're learning something about the nature of man, if because of man has to be both a citizen and a philosopher, and those two things are so different. There's a real duality in man. There's a real problem about man's wholeness. Now. He takes Meletus up. And he has a dialogue. See the character of the dialogue which is very interesting. Uh, uh, He divides this discussion into three parts. The first has to do with corruption of the youth. And he begins with what I think one could only call rhetorical, or a lawyer's technique almost. If somebody makes them bad, who makes them good? To which Melitus responds, the laws. And that isn't that isn't accepted by, uh, by Socrates. What men? Because if you know a man who makes them bad, you must know a man who makes them good. That's not necessarily the case, you see. But Meletus speaks as the citizen. Every citizen has to believe and We live in an age, I'm afraid, too much infected by easy disagreement of conscience, easy civil disobedience. But you know, we really have to live by the laws. The, uh, and Meletus there speaks perfectly decently about made to look like a fool. I mean, that is a reasonable response. I mean, what is it that makes it? I mean, what is our fundamental educator, or should be, in any decent society? is the laws. I mean, about the fundamental moral things. I mean, maybe you, you, there's some natural justice, and the laws should fit the natural justice. See, the problem about this whole dialogue, of course, is it talks about justice all the time, and there's no attempt to define justice. The Republic is the book that tries to define justice. That's, uh, by the way, a question perhaps we'll going to raise later. But, the, uh, but here, the question of law is absolutely critical the uh and uh the uh the laws but well, socrates dismisses that what men somehow and somehow he implies by this that the laws are made by men i mean that's the implication of this shift if you notice, which of course is not the way all laws understand themselves to be surely you know the ten commandments don't look at, i think the athenian laws were understood to have come partly from gods and so on you can see a Socratic irreverence for the law by saying it's not the law that counts, it's the men. And then Meletus responds, what men? And you know when he says, what, what men? He says, all the Athenians. And that sounds absurd. And the students are likely to take that. as absurd. But I mean, what do you respond to them in that case? You respond very simply, that's what you believe if you believe in democracy. And if you don't believe in democracy, you know, or uh, I mean, if you don't believe in this, you don't believe in democracy. I mean, everybody says you have to follow the people's wishes. I mean, today when they make radical criticisms, they don't say that the people are unjust or the popular will is unjust, which men would have said in the past. Today they say, we didn't get a democratic expression of opinion. The real people didn't speak. I mean, isn't that what the, all they say? Isn't that what the left says? Isn't that what Father Berrigan says, you know? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, this is, uh, the, uh, the, um, now, I mean, Socrates you know, I think, Paul points this out is manifestly absurd. <laughs> he says, I alone corrupt them, and everybody else makes them good, but the, 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 this is the, uh, but he said, this is, I mean, so this seems like a stupid response, but I believe it is the necessary response of democracy. All the citizens, the citizens of the whole, the people. And they say, then Socrates uses this kind of, again he goes back to his horse trainer thing. Is, you know uh, who, uh, who who makes horses good? You know everybody or the expert. And the question is: Is there? Of course, the implication is there must be some expert. The question is: Is there an expert on man as there are on horses? I'm Socrates implies there is. Whereas earlier he said he didn't have that knowledge. By the way, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, but nevertheless, what is implied in this entire passage? An anti-democratic prejudice. That knowledge is what is necessary for goodness. Whereas the Athenians say consent or the many, or you can say that the important knowledge is the preserve of a few. Socrates indicates in this very passage an anti-democratic prejudice. I believe. Uh, say uh, uh, that's the first place, and that is not a response to whether he corrupts the youth. He doesn't let him discuss whether he corrupts the youth. You know, in what way he corrupts the youth? Yeah. The second is: this is nobody voluntarily wants to have bad men around him. Therefore, if I do it, if I do it involuntarily, therefore I can't be convicted for it. What's the problem with that argument?
2: Therefore, yeah, the ambiguity bad, bad for Socrates' immediate self-interest, or bad for the state?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or perhaps you know there might be good itself. men who are not good citizens. You know that's uh, you know uh, you see. Of course, he doesn't define it all. That's uh, that. that uh, see, and that's something you see that they ought to be able to develop for themselves. But in the second place, what would this imply? If you look at this argument for a moment, he says nobody wants to have bad men around. Him. Therefore. You know, because he would, he would get hurt. Therefore, anybody who corrupts people must be doing it involuntarily. What's the reason? What, what does that mean for the legal system?
2: But there's no nobody's su-
0: going nobody yeah, to be guilty, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is—I mean, we're coming to that. My, my, my latest suggestion, my reason, my most recent piece of wisdom is—or or, my political suggestion is no-fault murder, which, is, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is going to be the next, next thing. We'll solve all the problems. We're 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 coming closer and closer to that. The uh, the. Uh, the uh the uh um the uh, thank you i'm pleased with that one myself too <laughs> i haven't had yet a chance to use some classes developed since i heard you know the latest fault insurance and civil you know, automobile insurance no yeah. divorce, what they have no fault divorce though. yeah
2: they do yeah yeah i think the state of washington is experimenting
0: <laughs> no, no, it's moving that way. I mean, yeah. there, there's no question that uh, some people are at the frontiers of that. Yeah, they, uh, they, you know, I mean, the, the, the latest doctrine is, of course, prisons are what cause crime. Therefore, if we abolish prisons, there'll be no more crime. You know, that's the essential thing <laughs> oh, of, of this Mitford book, of the Jessica Mitford book, which is making such a splash among all the best people. Yeah? <laughs> uh, the former attorney general, Ramsey Clark, Yeah. You know. Well,
3: but this is almost a mirror of isn't uh, it, that uh, I'm responsible, but I'm not
0: guilty. If these men, well, the he, men I had
3: about me um, were evil, then I take the responsibility,
0: but not the blame. No, no, but 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 no, but, but here he says he's irresponsible. No, no, the only reason why they will maintain prisons, the left, is uh, in order to incarcerate members of Nixon administration. <laughs> they were the only people to be responsible for any crime, I believe. <laughs> I think his argument is No, no, it's not nobody No, he says he takes responsibility, where Socrates says he wouldn't be responsible. Nobody says
3: no no man willingly has bad men about
0: him, so of course he can't be held responsible. Piety by fear of the gods, moral indignation, pious indignation. And Socrates was the only one who didn't share it. Isn't that interesting? And what is Socrates being put to death for? The same thing. In a way, you can say he doesn't go out and get the dead. He's not as afraid of the gods as the others are. Eh, very simply. Or you can say that he would set reason against the gods in this case. That it was. He probably would have been willing to put the men to death if they hadn't, you know, if they had just left them. But there was a storm. And so it was an unreasonable demand put by the gods. But, of course, gods sometimes ask for unreasonable sacrifices. and That's the whole point. It would require the sacrifice of the intellect. And Socrates is unwilling to make that. But you can say the people as a whole, the city as a whole, represents that kind of piety, however one wants to understand it, when one understands it as, as great devotion. You see, we think we have rationalized politics. And there's no question that are much less believers. The question is whether the seat of fanatic piety is not always the people at large, somehow, led you know, by, by people. But, you know, that, and that somehow philosophy is very alien. You know, I know, uh, we became very well aware of this in this fake, because it wasn't over real issues, you know, fake atmosphere of the late 60s, when I was frequently accused. I mean, I had people yelling and screaming at me with, you know, anger, you know, how dare you be in an ivory tower, you know, when people are dying in Vietnam, you know. That was, uh, well, I mean, I lived in the atmosphere, you know, my next door neighbor was Father (laughs) Berrigan, and uh, uh, he was committed. and. I wasn't not to compare myself to Socrates, but I'm willing to compare myself to Mother Berrigan. Or, I mean, in, <laughs> if, if you'll forgive that, that, that impiety, and yeah, the the somehow you have to face. It. This is the way of philosophy, and some some people don't like it. It's ugly. You know, to the committed, to the indignant, and so on. From the point, of, from another point of view, it may be more decent. But but that must be faced—a a certain coldness, perhaps a coldness that restrains. In this case, they—you know—it was a terrible thing they did. But Socrates does not sympathize with the piety or the indignation of the many. And so this is—you see—that this apparently innocuous example—I mean—I think leads to a very fundamental characterization of the problem of philosophy and by the way there's nothing more important for students to understand that somehow morality requires anger and indignation and philosophy requires freedom from it and the second example is a very good one you see here you see him opposing the democracy the second one he gives one favorable to to his case because you know he says I opposed the 30 tyrants the 30 tyrants asked me to go get Leon of Salamis and I refused to do it. I just went home. What could somebody say about this example? The way it was courageous. But what could somebody say? I mean, it was somewhat more strict. Yeah, the 30 Times ordered him to go. You know, you know, they like to involve people in their. Um, I mean, as, as usual. Uh, uh, to-